This audio recording is produced by Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous, also known as FA. FA is a program based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is free and open to anyone who wants to stop eating addictively. The following is one FA member's story of recovery. The opinions expressed here are those of the individual member and do not represent FA as a whole. If you are new or uncertain about FA, we encourage you to listen to several stories to gain an understanding of what the program offers. For information on the FA program, please visit our website, foodaddicts.org. This meeting is being sponsored by the FA New England 12-Step Committee for the distinct purpose of creating tapes for the 12-Step Committee tape library. Those who wish, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. My story is one of uh, a story of fear, doubt, and insecurity. I uh, was born the youngest of, of uh, four children, and I had three sisters who are older than me. And I remember from a very, very early age uh, feeling fearful. Uh, I, loved, I loved my home. I loved being with my mother. I loved having my father home at night. And I just remember being very, very fearful as a young boy. Um, I grew up with a feeling of deprivation uh, and inside that I couldn't get enough. There was a strong feeling in me that I just simply couldn't get enough. And, and I, the best way I have known describing it is I felt deprived. Uh, now, I had no reason to feel deprived. Uh, in fact, uh, and I like to share that, my, that I lived a pretty good life, really. I mean, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, my father was a, was a shoe worker, uh, a factory worker. Uh, my mother was a homemaker. Uh, and we had a, you know, I remember... In those days, way back in, in, the, uh, in the 40s and 50s, he was making $5,000 a year, and that's what we had to live on. But uh, I still uh, had a feeling of deprivation. Uh, it was a good family. Uh, now, my father and mother both had good reason to feel deprived, and i just like to tell their story a bit in that sense that, uh, for example, my father had a, had a drop out of school at seven years old, to support his six younger brothers and sisters, and this was in, in the country, in a country in the Middle East, uh, and and never never finished, never learned to read or write in in his native language uh, or in English when he came to this country, uh, and uh, and was a worker all his life, and was a very dutiful worker, and supported the family very well, but but. He, he really uh, never got what he, what he needed. He had to leave this country when he was 14 to avoid <clears throat> a draft from uh, another country that was coming through to, to draft young people. So he came to this country penniless. Uh, married, got married real young. His first wife didn't like him too much, and, and uh, she and her lover tried to have him killed. He got divorced. Uh, uh, so he had a, he had a, a tough life, uh, a life of deprivation. Really, life deprived him in terms of what, and he lived with that all his life. He lived with that feeling of of deprivation. I'm, uh, um, I remember uh, 
talking to him when he was 62 and asking him, uh, Dad, uh, uh, what do you think about you sit on the stairs smoking your cigars all evening? He was older than me. He was 50 years old when he had me. And he said, I, he said, I just feel like life screwed me. I feel like my mother screwed me, you know, from a way back a long time ago when she made me drop out of school to support the family. My mother equally had a life of that life where that was hard. Uh, she lost her father in, in the same country in, in the Middle East and, uh, she, uh, at 12 years old, she lost her dad at 12 years old. Uh, she was the oldest, uh, sibling as well. And, um, she had to, her mother, I don't think was particularly fond of her, uh, uh, growing up. Uh, and what happened was that her, a, a man came over to this country to be a suitor for his, her mother. Uh, and he was about 40 years old. He was a, a rich businessman from, from the United States who came over to, to get a wife. And he asked her mother, to, my grandmother, to, to marry him. And she said, no, take my daughter, Linda. And that was her husband. And so she, she got, immediately got pregnant. They got married in, in the Middle East, uh, got pregnant and came to this country. And, and uh, uh, a 20-year-old woman didn't even know the facts of life when she got married. Uh, and uh, conceived a baby, uh, and uh, and had two two lovely girls who were my sisters. Uh, and then the man, when he came to this country, he was about 45 years, had a heart attack and died. So here she was in, in the 1920s, in the in the south end of Boston, no money, not able to speak the language. Her her mother was this time at this point in Mexico. Her 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 brother was uh, back in in uh, in the Middle East. <clears throat> so quite alone and that's how she met my father because uh, she needed to meet my father uh, both were survivors both were dependent very dependable I never saw a lot of intimacy between them in their lives uh, they both had they both had previous marriages uh, and uh, I never saw a lot of affection but they loved each other in the sense that they gave their presence to each other and worked uh, and that that has ramifications for my story because as I looked at my marriage, uh, uh, my marriage grew to be like theirs eventually in, in terms of our sense of intimacy and, and, and affection. And, uh, uh, but that's, that comes later um, in my story. So, so my, both, both my parents had lived a life of deprivation. And I grew up with this feeling. And I, I grew up with the feeling of... of uh, uh, of uh, of that, my last night I was uh, I, I was with my daughter. She she's a 24 year old medical student, and uh, and she was talking to me last night about here she is you know achieving very very well. Uh, she's a she's a she was an all American cross country uh, uh, cross country runner. Uh, she's second year in med medical school, doing very well, but not feeling like she's enough. You know, I mean. And there's no reason for her to have that feeling. She grew, came from a very loving family. She had a lot of stuff going for her. But it's who we are as people. It's who I was. I grew up with this feeling of deprivation because of who I am, not because of the environment, not because of anything else, but for who I am. Uh, and, uh, and that had a lot to do with my fear, doubt, and insecurity. And the food quickly followed because the food was something that I don't, I came, I've come to understand that I didn't understand then, of course, that gave me great comfort. Uh, the food, uh, uh, whenever I'd have, whenever I'd eat something, whenever I'd taste something, I'd feel that life was okay. From a very, very young age, um, uh, when I'd come home from school in the afternoon, as a, just in elementary school, 
remember coming home at at, at uh, two and a half uh, at two thirty in the afternoon and going right to the refrigerator because uh, that's what I did. And it was coming home. It was having the food, the taste in my mouth that gave me this feeling of security. That gave me this feeling of warmth. Uh, and I didn't associate it at the time. All I knew is that it took away my fear. It took away my worry. Um, when I was, I remember when I had to, you know, talk about my fear. I remember when I had to be go to my first days of school, and uh, holding on to the to, to the kitchen table, the leg of the kitchen table, and 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 having Judy Pagrulo, who was my neighbor, who was a year older than me, pulling on me to get me out the door so she could drag me off to elementary school. Uh, I mean, this this was not a kid that took on on the world with a lot of uh, gusto. I'll never forget that uh, when I saw my own children, uh, uh, my oldest one is 27 and, uh, and now a lawyer, and, and then and when I saw them go off to school with such zealousness, such eagerness, and they'd come home and I'd say, how'd you like school? They'd say, oh, Dad, it was wonderful. And I'd sit there and I'd say, my God, you know, they're there for the grace of God. I mean, isn't that wonderful that they, they approached life and school so much more differently, and that, that was, that was a, a beautiful thing. Um, but my story was not that. My story was going to bed at night and being, and not having the light in the room open, but having the light in the next room open so there was light shining in my room, uh, of having my father and mother having to come in and sit on my bed to, so I could go to sleep at night. Because uh, just because I guess I was afraid, I don't know if it was the dark or was just afraid of letting go, afraid of what would happen if I fell asleep. You know, what would happen to me if I fell asleep? And what would happen to me is I'd wake up the next morning, you know, but I didn't know that. And I was an addict from a very early age. I mean, I, I didn't know that at the time, but I hated giving up the day. I hated going to sleep. So I developed, even as a very young boy, this tendency to eat before I went to bed. And it just felt good to eat. I thought I was hungry, but what it did was it would sedate me and help me sleep. Uh, so, you know, I, this this disease started at a very, very early age. And, and, and I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, I was... I was quite a little manipulator. And little George was quite a little manipulator when he was when in elementary school. Uh, I wanted to become a uh, uh, safety guard. You know, they have these kids with the badges. I don't know if they still have them with the little badges who kind of direct kids crossing the street. And I thought that was pretty hotshot stuff. And I said, oh, I want to be that. I want to order people around. You know, <laughs> I guess I don't know what I thought. I just wanted the status of it, I guess. And I thought that was a pretty neat thing to be. I wasn't chosen by my sixth grade teacher, and I'll forget the day she was out, and I heard that there was going to meeting, be a meeting of all the kids who were chosen. So I went to Mr. Velado, who was the assistant principal of this little elementary school, and I said, Miss Barron picked me. And I don't know if he knew or not, he was a very kindly man, so he let me come to the meeting. I became a security guard. Uh, but even to that, you know, I mean, Miss Barron was a holy terror. I mean, if she had found out this, I mean, she would have... Really, I mean, she was a very, very fearful lady in that school, and and she would take kids and berate them publicly in front of the assembly and stuff like that. Uh, uh, and I was really risking sort of my life at the time. And <laughs> but that didn't bother me, you know. I, I took my risk because I wanted to be that safety guard. But I remember standing up and, and for years after looking at that picture. Every time I look at myself smiling when they took a picture of all the safety guards, and smiling, they're smiling out of that picture. I look at myself and say, you know, Judge, you don't belong there. You know, don't belong there, and and that's true. I didn't. It wasn't my safety guard position to have. It was something that me and my will really went after. So, 
There's a lot of seeds as I look back that I've gotten through doing the fourth step that I've come to understand. I was ashamed of my parents at a very early age. Uh, I hate to say that, but it was true. Uh, I, my father was, was, was old when, you know, he was 50 years old when I was born, so when I, and, and he looked older than all the other dads in the neighborhood. He was bald, of all things, and he, you know, what a horror that was, right? So, uh, he, uh, he, uh, you know, he, he was different. Uh, my mother, you know, she used to wear kerchiefs around her head, and she always looked like a little peasant woman, you know, and, and she didn't look like the other, other American mothers that I had. And so, you know, I had some shame about that, and I have to own that. Uh, but there was something else that was even more what the shame was about, as I found out in, in my first fourth step, was the shame about was about me, just simply being me. I don't know why I have that feeling, but that feeling that I'm not enough. Uh, but there it was, right then and there. And so the shame came out in relationship to my parents, but it really had to do a lot with how I felt about myself. Uh, um, when I got out of elementary school, went to, went to uh, high school, and went to an all-male all school in the city of Boston, uh, which was not good. It was a very academically tough school. We had to study five or six hours a night. I mean, this was a kid who needed to be to be able to learn how to relate to women. This was not a kid that needed to relate to boys. And it, again, it was all boys. Uh, this was a kid who did not have to s sit in, in his home studying at night. He should have been out dating and doing stuff. So my relationships to women, uh, even, I had a lot of fear and doubt and security around women, but got compounded by those six. I went to that school from the seventh grade to the twelfth grade. Got compounded with that. I didn't have a normal, normal, you know, social life. Uh, life I mean uh, and that that that's that was a, I think that was a problem in my life it became a, I noticed even in those years that my weight was an issue that I'd always was sensitive to my weight and I became very conscious of uh, uh, I grew up in, in an Italian and Irish community and, and all the all the young guys and they all were hard bodies you know we go swimming or stuff and or whatever and and uh, and I noticed their bodies, and they were they were just firm, you know, they were just firm bodies. Mine was rounded. Every every place I looked, there was a curve. The stomach was sticking out, my butt was sticking out, my hips were too big, my head was too big. Everything seemed round and curvy, and theirs seemed hard and, and sinewy, you know, like they had like. And I, you know, I used to, and I said to my sister, I said, you know, why does my stomach stick out so much? I remember as a young boy, and she said. You know, our family's pretty good at rationalizations, and, and so she said, well, in our family, we have weak stomach muscles, and, and, uh, uh, and she did too, <laughs> but, but, you know, I don't have weak stomach muscles. When I get down to 135, uh, and I was, uh, let me give you my numbers before I forget, I was, uh, you know, 215 pounds when I came into this at five, four and a half, not a tall guy, and, uh, uh, and, and I'm now 135 pounds. Uh, so I lost 80 pounds in this program. When I lost that 80 pounds, I found that my stomach muscles weren't, uh, soft. I mean, uh, I have, you know, I have good stomach muscles and they work very well. Uh, and I noticed my butt doesn't stick out, you know, uh, because my stomach muscles are weak, you know. So, uh, uh, you know, and so, you know, I mean, I just, you know, but you know, we're rational. We're rationalizing. My, my my disease is one of rationalization. I I never saw myself as fat, even when I was 215 and and just bulbous. You know, looked like you know we talk about taking the helium treatment. I was just, I had you know, I was kind of like a beach ball with a little ball on top. It it was just I was a bulbous body, and uh, uh, I um, all those all those times I I really didn't uh, have a uh, 
a good sense of, of that I was fat. I'd look in the mirror and all I would see is my eyes. I, I, I would look in, or I'd look at my head and I would never look at the rest of my body. And when, I, when I'd get a photograph or when somebody would come up to me and say, boy, you're getting heavy, I'd be taken back. I'll never forget the time that one guy uh, came up to me, had this big pot on him, and I was about 40 years old at the time, came up to me and said, uh, uh, boy, you're, you and I have to do something about our weight. And I looked at him and I said, you have to do something about your weight. But, and then he, looked, he says, no, you look like you've got your own, own stuff there going. So, I, you know, I mean, I, I, but I didn't see that. You know, if you ask me now, am I bald? I know I'm bald. I know I'm bald, but if I look in the mirror, I don't see a bald man. You know, I see eyes, I see nose, I see mustache, you know, it's pretty hairy. I see all kinds of things, but I don't see, I don't see bald. I see, a, I see a picture of myself or, or a flash gets a glare in the top of my head. I know I'm bald. <laughs> you know, there you are. You know, there you are. So, you know, but it's the way I look at myself and the way I, you know, just my capacity for denial. And I, I really have a strong, I didn't realize that as much, you know, I didn't realize that as much. Anyway, uh, got through high school, noticing very much going up and down on my weight. Uh, uh, I, I got my license at 16 and, and all of a sudden discovered that I'd be going to delicatessens to get these huge pastry things at, at 10 and 11 o'clock at night. We went to a place in, in Rosendale where I grew up in the part of Boston where Pleasant Cafe and would have these big round things and I'd eat the whole thing. I noticed I'd eat the whole thing before I went to bed. So that process of eating before I went to bed became really very, very big for me uh, throughout my life and has become a theme for me all my life. Um, but I noticed that. When I got into college, I, uh, 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 there was more, this, this, this yo-yo thing, I'd, be, I'd go down, I was once 135 pounds. Uh, people saw me, thought, and I remember a bunch of people come to me saying, you look, you look like you're a Holocaust victim or you look like you're, you know, you look so gaunt, you look so terrible. And my sister saw me that. She was at the same school I was at at the time. And, and, uh, and then I went up to 186. And again, this is a theme of, of my story of in high school, uh, 155 was heavy for me. You know, I, I was about 150. Uh, when I got into college, 186 was heavy. When I got, a, when I got out of college and as I got older, 200 was heavy. When I came to this program at 53, 215 was enormous. But you can see that the trend upward. Uh, I think I probably would have been 260, 270, uh, probably if I didn't get into this program five years uh, ago. Uh, and the result of all that weight created serious trouble for me. Uh, it created a terrible cholesterol problem. And uh, I tried to manage my cholesterol with, uh, with food, uh, you know, just with, with eating fat-free food and stuff like that. And the doctor, we didn't know, he didn't know it was the weight. He said I ought to lose weight, but he, nobody knew what it was. And... But I had a three. I was running about a 300 uh, cholesterol, and the uh, <clears throat> in the good cholesterol, the HDL was only 25, which is very very low. And a lot of my uncles had died of heart attacks. And he used to sit across from me. He said, "You're dying now. I want to tell you that right now. Your arteries are filling up, and you're dying. You need to know that." And this was when I was 40, 45, 50, all those years through there. He said, you've got to do something about it. You've got to stop eating as much as you're eating or, or whatever is going on for you. Uh, I couldn't stop eating. I couldn't stop eating. I remember just eating totally fat-free food, but I couldn't stop eating. Uh, and um, uh, the, the upshot of that story is that, is that when I got into this program, uh, I lost my 80 pounds, and my cholesterol numbers came down to 153. 
from three, 287 where it was when I started this program. My blood pressure is 100 over 60. Um, my will had pushed not only my weight to 215, had not only pushed my cholesterol uh, numbers to 287, had my sugar, I was pre-diabetic before coming to this program, had pushed my, uh, my sugar count in my blood to 164, which was pre-diabetic. That is now 64. So I got a 153 cholesterol, 135 pounds, uh, and my, uh, my uh, sugar count is around 64 versus 164. So, you know, that's God's will relative to what my will did. Uh, I didn't understand that at all. Uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, I think God spoke to me uh, when I was 19 years old, uh, my, uh, uh, I was home from college one weekend, and my father uh, said to me, he said, I can't take your mother anymore, and I really, need to get a, I really need to get away from her. I can't stand her anymore. And my mother had a tendency of, and she was a kind of an addict in her way, especially in human relations, where she knew no boundaries. She would, you know, the only way she would, could get boundaries from men was she'd aggravate the hell out of them, and they'd, and they'd respond and go, you know, they'd yell, they'd say something, they'd scream. I did. I mean, growing up with her, I'd find myself screaming. I said, why am I screaming at my mother? But if I look back on it, she just would get needle me and aggravate me till I kind of... And then once she yelled at her or said something, she'd just quiet right down. You know, she'd just get very peaceful. And, uh, uh, and, and this was her tendency with men. So my father was feeling some of that, and he just couldn't take it anymore. And um, so... Uh, uh, I all of a sudden, when I heard that he was going to break up with her, I, I started crying. And uh, I couldn't stop crying. I started crying, and I cried for 10 weeks. Now, this is a guy that never never cried a tear in his life, you know, or maybe occasionally for some uh, very strange reason cry. All of a sudden, I started crying. I had to drop out of school, uh, and, and, and it was, you know, it was a, a wake-up signal for me around that uh, God was trying to tell me, I think, as I look back on that, that you can't depend on your will to do it all. You can't put them back together. It's beyond your control. You've got to let it go. You can't heal your mother. You can't make your mother better. You can't heal your father. You know, you don't, can't even heal yourself. I mean, that's what God was trying to tell me at the time. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that. You know, all I knew is that I had become helpless and I just was crying because I couldn't help. Uh, what I did is I, is I got the only solution I knew at the time, which was uh, a uh, psychiatrist that I went to, who kind of held my hand for twice a week for nine years and just held my hand. You know, I mean, that's all he did, really, when I said, think about it. And I used to say to him, I said, there's got to be, and I don't feel like I'm growing. You know, I mean, I, and I come here, I feel comfort and I feel support, but I don't feel like I'm growing. And, uh, and it wasn't his fault. He was only dealing with one piece of me. He was dealing with my self-centered will. That part of me that wanted to make everything right, that wanted to make everything happen, that part of me that needs to control, that piece that Bill W. talks in the big book about the director in step three and how it works in, in chapter five. I mean, that was me just trying to control life and make it come my way so that I couldn't, uh, um, so that I could make everything better, that somehow I could do it. And that's just stuff I learned from my mother and my father, you know, which is you've got to take care of yourself, and it's all driven by fear. I wasn't a controlling person because I was a bad person. In fact, I was pretty nice sometimes to people. So that wasn't the issue. The issue was that, uh, that I, was, I was a controlling person because I was afraid. I didn't trust. And I couldn't trust. Um, 
the food got worse and worse as time went on. Uh, and uh, uh, but I probably the best uh, the best part of my life was when I met my wife and we got married, and we had two children, two small two small little kids, and uh, that was a that was a wonderful uh, that was a wonderful experience for both of us. For the first eight years of our marriage, was really terrific. I was working a job. I, I wanted to be a playwright, but at the same time, I wanted to work my job. Uh, I had to make money for my family, but I still had hope about my dreams, about someday that I'd be able to make my living writing and so on, uh, and not have to, you know, work every day doing the job I was doing. Uh, and 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 that was all right. You know, it was a good time. It was a good time for us. It was a good time for her. She she had she loved, she loved being a mother. She enjoyed her children. Uh, and it was just a delightful time for her. Um, and my weight, meanwhile, wasn't too bad in those years. You know, I don't think the heaviest I got was about 170. Uh, but it was just a good time uh, for both of us. And But things began to happen as the kids got older. Um, things began to happen in our relationship uh, that, weren't, that weren't healthy uh, for us. Uh, uh, her father died. And she was very, very struck by this, uh, and it was very depressing for her. And she got some got some help to try to help herself with that. But she, I don't, I think she, I don't think in some way she ever came back from that in quite the way that she was before. Uh, I, as the kids got older, I realized that I was getting older. I realized that college was coming from them. I felt uh, I felt more and more trapped in the work I was doing. I, I took a I took another job, a corporate job, uh, working uh, for a, uh, a, a company uh, that, that I felt uh, would, would pay more for my uh, family. Uh, it, it was a very uh, grinding kind of job in the sense that it was very demanding, and I became a workaholic. And I started getting more and more trapped uh, uh, in, the life, in the life, in the security of getting the money uh, that we needed. Uh, other things started becoming more meaningful to me on the job, like having how many people I had reporting to me, how, many, uh, uh, how much money I was making, only because it, it, it gave, gave our family security. But the result of our relationship is we started drawing apart some uh, and, getting, and, and getting distance from each other. Uh, uh, at the same time that this was going on, uh, my 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 food started uh, getting worse for me. Uh, I started eating uh, more nights. Uh, I became a terrible night eater. Uh, couldn't couldn't stop. Uh, uh, I'd wake up at two in the morning. I'd be eating. I'd wake up at at four in the morning. I'd be eating. Uh, I would. Uh, uh, there wasn't a night that went by that I wouldn't get up. I, I thought about barricading the room to my door so I couldn't get out. Uh, and, and, um, that, uh, I, you know, my, my wife was obviously had to get out of the room maybe, so that wasn't a good idea. Uh, uh, I, I thought of padlocking the, uh, in padlocking the refrigerator so I wouldn't get into the refrigerator. I mean, it really became intensely fearful for me. Uh, and I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop it. Uh, the last, uh, the last diet I went on was when I was 42. And it was a it was a good diet. Uh, we brought this I brought this woman into the organization, who who was uh, who was uh, who was going to help us lose weight. And her technique for helping us lose weight was that you waited 60 seconds between each bite. And so uh, so you'd eat a bite of food and you'd watch your watch for 60 seconds and then you'd uh, and then you'd eat another bite. 
And it worked. It worked. As long as it was in that 10 weeks, I'd sit there and drive me crazy waiting for, you know, the thing to, uh, but it worked. And, uh, and so I, I, I went down to, uh, I think I was 190 pounds when I started that. I went down to 170 and I was absolutely delighted. 20 pounds off my body. This was wonderful. Of course, after 10 weeks, we couldn't afford to keep paying her. So she left. So, uh, the, the 60 seconds went out the window and, and, uh, because, uh, uh, you know, what this wonderful program has taught me, you know, and what that, what that wait, that watch, you know, that uh, 60 seconds did for me something is what this program tries to do for us in, it, in its way. You know, what, the, what that tries to do is it tries to teach us to do, defer the impulse, you know, that you want to eat and you defer the impulse, you know, for 60 seconds. Well, in a sense, this program does it for us. When we, when we do the tools instead of taking the bite, when we make, when we weigh and measure our food at the, at the, at, at, at the counter and not pick at it and eat it while we're weighing and measuring it. I remember the first time when I first started my relationship with my sponsor and my first sponsor, I said, well, the only part, the weigh and measuring is good and I'm really losing weight, but by the time I go to sit down, there's nothing left on my plate. And she said, no, we don't do it that way. I said, why not? I said, it's weighing and measuring. She said, we don't do it that way. You sit down at the table and you, and at your kitchen table or wherever your, your dining room table and you eat. And, 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 uh, I said, okay. What I learned to do with that is to learn to defer the impulse. That situation, I learned to make a call instead of eat. I learned to, uh, get down on my knees instead of eat. I learned to when I'm nervous and I want to react and get, I mean, my, my addiction was one of feel out of control take control by eating, and then feel better about it. And I had to break that cycle for myself, where I felt fear or out of control, and I defer the impulse, and guess what? When I defer the impulse, I'd find a greater strength within me. I don't know where it came from, and I call that now my higher power. I don't know where it came, but that's what deferring, you know, I, I, a woman, young woman, who is saying, you know, that now that she's given up the food, has said to me, I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know what to do with my time. I sit there during the weekend not knowing what to do. I said, just be patient. Just be patient. I said, you'll, God, you'll find the strength. I said, the first step is taking all the disease out of your life. That is the first step. The next step is letting, is letting the good stuff now come in. You can't let good stuff come in when your life is cluttered with a lot of bad stuff. And that's what my life was cluttered with a lot of eating and a lot of crazy stuff that I did. When you defer the impulse, it allows a greater strength that we all have within us. The big book says we all have that within us to come into our lives. And, and that's what happened, and that's exactly what happened to me uh, as I began this program. I was desperate. Uh, I didn't, I, you know, as a 19, God told me that you had a problem, George, and you need to get some help. And what I did is I patched together my self-centered will, and I used that as a means of, 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 uh, of uh, getting by in life. And it got me to a place, but I became more and more during those years when I felt trapped and, where, and, and as the kids got older and I got into this corporate job, of feeling more and more separated from myself. And, and I, was, I, was, I couldn't stop eating. I remember talking to my, to my uh, shrink about it at the time. I, sa I said, look, what's going on? You're supposed to make me better, and I'm still eating. He said, I'm sorry, I can't help you with your eating, is what he said to me. I can't help you with That's not what I do. I said, you'll need, a be you'll need a behavioral program to take care of that. I talked to my kids, you know, and I talked to my wife, but she was tired of listening. I've been complaining to her all my life about not eating. 
about eating and wanting to not eat. And, and, but my kids, my kids would listen, you know, but all they'd do is just suffer with me. That's all they could do was suffer with me because nobody had an answer. So uh, I, was in an, I was in a client's office, and he was a large man who had had a uh, heart uh, um, bypass and was still fat. And so I said to him, Bob, I said, you're going you're gonna to kill yourself. I said, you, you really need to, you got to lose some weight. He looked at me and he gave me one of my things that I mirror responses, which was, yeah, you look like you're going to kill yourself. And I said, yeah, that's true. I, so he said, well, look, my, my wife's a big deal in the 12-step program. Uh, uh, let me let's see if I can get some literature. He brought in the literature about a month later. I got it. And it had all this talk about God. And I was an agnostic for, for 53 years of my life. And I said, uh, uh, Bob, that's, uh, uh, I, that's, that must be a Catholic program or something, because I don't, I don't do God. You know, I just don't do God. As a young boy, I looked for God all over the place. I looked for him in church. I just couldn't find him. I couldn't find him. I couldn't let him in. Didn't know how to let him. There's no, if, if you're full of self-centered will, there's no room for God in you. It's as simple as that. If you're full of self, you become God. You know, and history is full of people who become gods, uh, who are full of self-centered will. Uh, and, uh, and the damage they do to, other, to the world and to other people. And that's where I was. You know, I was so full of myself in my own fear and my own concern about surviving. Uh, I, I, I really uh, lost all sense of, of, uh, of, there was no room for God in me. And anyway, it was a year after that, that I was in that client's office. I was back there and I had tried to do it on my own for a year and had been unsuccessful for a year. And and uh, I said to him, I said, Bob, I don't know. I said, I'm, I'm desperate. I think I might even use that word. I can't lose a pound. I don't know what to do. And he said, uh, he said, well, maybe maybe you ought to go to that. I said, I, you said it. I'm going. He said to me, hey, George, can I come with you? I said, yeah, you come. He said, but I want you to I want to make it clear that I'm not going with my wife. I'm going with you. I said, that's fine. So, uh, uh, so he came and we, and, uh, and I started and we went to, started going to all these meetings and, uh, and you know, the first meeting I went to, it was, it was not a 90 day meeting. It was kind of sit around in circles, hold each other's hand meeting kind of thing and people eating and trying to support each other and being pretty unhappy or, and sometimes happy about being fat or unfat or whatever. And, but you know, I, I really sensed at the time that this is what I was looking for all my life. I said to myself, I said, you know, what really has impressed me about this program is, is the honesty of people trying to fight the honest struggle with each other and talking about the struggle. And this is what I was missing in my life. This is what I needed to, uh, needed to hear of people being honest about their struggle and what they were trying to do. I noticed in the beginning, I heard there were people who weighed and measured in these meetings and they'd get up and share. I noticed from the outset, I said, boy, they sound pretty tough to me is what my first reaction was. <clears throat> my second reaction was they sound pretty integrated. And I was a guy that was totally disintegrated. I mean, I was a guy who was very separated from myself. And all of a sudden I started to hear women, and they were mostly women in these groups, saying uh, that, that I'm, 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 I'm aligned with myself. I'm aligned with my conscience. They called it God. I called it conscience at the time. I'm aligned with I'm aligned with my God, and and their and their life was truthful. Their life had integrity. I didn't have that. I learned at a very young age to keep promises to other people, to be effective in, as a father and as a husband and as a businessman, as a, just as a human being. You need to learn to keep your promises. And I learned that in my twenties. It was hard for me to do that, but I learned it. 
but I had never learned to keep promises to myself. Never. I couldn't keep a promise to myself. The countless times I would say I would not get up at 3 in the morning. The countless times I'd say, okay, this is the last time at the refrigerator. I would go to the refrigerator uh, and again and again and again. Uh, the countless times I get up, I'd start tomorrow. It will be all right. And I get up the next morning and about 10 o'clock I was off and running again uh, to the races of the food. Those countless times, the, 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 I had developed so much uh, uh, acid reflux in my system. I was, I was on close to a half a quarter milliliter a day. I'd take it wherever I was traveling all over the world. I'd put this in my suitcase. And my greatest fear was running out of Atlanta in, in, um, in some country where I had indigestion or I had acid. Uh, and, I, you know, I still couldn't do anything about it. And uh, uh, I couldn't keep my promises to myself. And how did I learn to start keeping promises to myself? After three months in this program where I sponsored myself, and I lost 20 pounds on my own, <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, my meals were huge, and I was eating three meals a day, whatever, that was it, but they were huge meals. Uh, I finally decided, you know, if, the pro, if you don't get the program, the program finally gets you, and that's what happened to me, thank God, because uh, I finally had the guts to ask one of these people who I thought was so tough, uh, who weighed and measured, which I thought was a very female thing to do at the time. Uh, uh, I, I, I finally asked to get the guts to ask this woman to sponsor me. She said she could only do it temporarily since I was a man. I said, that's fine. Uh, she did it for nine months, uh, I, uh, and she taught me everything about the food. I thought I knew a lot about the food. I knew nada. I knew nothing about the food. And she taught me how to uh, weigh and measure my food. And I fought her every inch of the way. I fought her every inch of the way, and she was patient, she was kind, she was loving. After nine months, she finally said, I think my temporary stint with you is over. You have worn me out. And because I was not one that came to surrender easily, there was one way to stay abstinence. There's a 100,000 ways to break it. And I kept searching for every single way I could uh, to break it. And uh, But thank God I kept on coming back because deep inside me, I knew I had found a solution to my life. Deep inside of me, I knew that I had found... I had found that little key in me that made everything all right. And it was locked in this one word, and that word was surrendering my will. I had never in my life learned to surrender my will to the will of another person. And therefore, I knew no boundaries. And that was my mental illness. That was my mental illness. I knew no boundaries uh, around food, and I knew no boundaries around my human relationships. But when I learned to surrender, when I learned to listen to her will, and she would say to me, I want you to weigh and measure four ounces of protein, six ounces of, of vegetable, eight ounces of salad, and six ounces of fruit, or whatever she was telling me, or want two ounces of grain. Whenever she was telling me that, I learned to listen to her will and to surrender. Surrender is not submission. It's a conscious choice. It's a conscious choice to turn your will over to the will of another person. And I like that when I see these films of, of people bowing down these nights, bowing down to Queen Elizabeth in, you know, in, the, in the 17th century. I see these knights bowing down to them. They are surrendering. They are consciously giving up their will to the will of this young, young female woman because they made a conscious choice to surrender to that person. Well, that's what I was doing with my sponsor. I was surrendering to her will because my will took me to 215 pounds. Her will was taking me to sanity, and I knew that. I knew that. Uh, deep down in my gut, thank God I knew that. And, and that's why my story from those days, though five years ago, from those days of, of, 
of uh, just freewheeling little groups to 90-day meetings to to coming to Chelsea to to when 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 our founders said we're going to start FA. I took my car and I used to go to a meeting uh, at, uh, in in Medford, and my car just went to Malden Hospital, which was the the first meeting the first meeting of that meeting, which was the beginning of FA. That wasn't the beginning of FA, but that was. That was in those beginning days. My car just went because deep down inside of me, that I knew that my disease was one of an inability to surrender my will. And as I say, they don't. My sponsor was not asking me to go out there and become a, a, a member of the, of the Manson family. She was not asking me to run naked through the streets, uh, which I probably would have done anyway if given any 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 encouragement at all. Uh, she she was not asking me to, uh, to do that. Uh, she was asking me simply to weigh and measure my food, and and, and that's what I did. Uh, and that was that started giving me boundaries to my life. And it's incredible the boundaries that I developed. And I developed with this woman. This woman that was with me for 90 days. Ninety nine months. Uh, when I when I when I, I I learned, I said I'm going to be as truthful with her as I can with anybody I have ever been in my life. Uh, uh, and uh, and so I started really being truthful with her. And what did I find out? That the truthfulness began to radiate in other parts of my life. I started feeling guilty. I started feeling guilty about stealing towels from hotels that I stayed in. You know, it had become a, a, a nasty habit of mine. You know, I get. I got more towels in my house than I know what to do with. My, each, I have three cats. Each of them have seven. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't need towels. But yet, with the, I see these big fluffy towels, very expensive towels in these hotels. And inevitably, one would end up in a suitcase. But I began feeling very self, I feel guilty about that. And where did that come from? It came from because of the honesty I was developing in this little kernel of my relationship with my sponsor. So that became a sacred thing for me. Weighing and measuring became a sacred thing. I used to ravage my food. I used to ravage. I used to rape it. I used to ravage my food. I mean, I wouldn't even know what I was eating, and there's always because I was always looking forward to the second helping or the third helping, and the only bite that ever made any sense to me was the first bite, which tasted wonderfully. Everything else just went down, uh, and and all of a sudden, weighing and measuring my food, I started treating my food differently. I started treating. I started eating more slowly, not because I needed to 60 seconds in between bites, but because because I just valued. My food, I valued, I be, it became more sacred to me. So ultimately what happened was when I started weighing and measuring and taking the clutter out of my life, taking the food out of my life, what happened to me was that at that point I was creating room in myself for something to enter. When I created room for myself for something to enter, one, one time I had taken my friend Bob, this guy that started the program, with me back to his house. I drove him home. I stopped at my mother's, who had passed away three years before this date. And all of a sudden, I started feeling very filled up. It was, it was after a meeting. And I started feeling this kind of joy, this acceptance, this self-acceptance, this feeling of love, this feeling of wanting to care, this feeling of being connected. I didn't know what it was. It just kind of rushed in me. The only times I ever used to feel that was when I did something that was tremendously glorious in the past. All of a sudden, I started feeling it just for being there. And I said, what is this feeling? And it occurred to me at that time that that's when I began to understand. So this must be the feeling of God that people talk about. This must be what, what Bill W. says, that within every single one of us, 
deep down there's a feeling of God in us. And I finally, by giving up my will to my sponsor, created the room for another whole part to enter my life. And that was my higher power, my God, my conscience, whatever we want to call it, that entered my life. And it was like a surfboard. It was like a rush. I felt like I was on a, I felt like I was, I was, I was on a surfboard on a wave. I mean, I couldn't believe the things I was doing. I was going to a, a, a eight o'clock meetings. I had never been up at eight o'clock on a Saturday in morning in my life. I always woke up hungover. Uh, I had never been uh, going to eight o'clock Sunday meetings. Uh, you know, uh, calling people on the phone, uh, uh, giving to people, doing things. People would ask me for things, not saying, "Oh, I don't have time." All of a sudden, saying, "I'll make time." Uh, you know, I mean, there was just a whole different change occurring for me. It was very, very different for me. And uh, just like I, I had discovered a whole new part of myself, and I thank God for that. And it's just so simple, you know, putting my broccoli on a scale to, because I was, I, was, I was doing the will of another, uh, allowing room for myself for God to enter my life. Uh, I still to this day don't, couldn't tell you what God is. I know it's an absence. He or she is an absence of my will. When I give up my will, I feel something much stronger, more resourceful, more resourceful, more sane in my life, and, and I thank God for that. Um, I, um, it, it's been the, the the wonders the wonders of this program have been tremendous for me, and I have found out that you know in the beginning the program was so hard for me to do because of this surrender issue, uh, but I but I hung in with it because of the feeling of acceptance and sanity I was getting in this program, the self acceptance, the feeling of of peace I was getting. I hung in with it. And the longer I did it, uh, the, the easier it got. So my program felt huge in the beginning. It felt like, uh, it felt like, uh, the Empire State Building, you know, cutting and measuring food and, 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 and uh, call, making calls and calling my sponsor and going to four. At the time, I was going to five meetings a week. For the first three years of my, of my involvement in program, I was going five meetings a week because I knew I needed it because I was hardcore. And, and so what, what would happen to me was that, you know, it was hard, though. It was hard fitting that into my life. But then as the more I did it, the less it became hard. The more I practiced weighing and measuring my food, the easier it got. Uh, and, and that's exactly what happened to me. So that at this point in my life, uh, the folk program is not a lot of hard work. It's like brushing my teeth, as somebody would say. It's part of my life, and I thank God, because what it has developed in me is a tremendous sense of, of the fellowship of this program. Uh, I'm so happy that FA exists as it does today because being with people over four or five years together and just watching us, uh, watching us grow together, the program has grown from 20 meetings from when it started to 124 today uh, in two years. And, and it's just wondrous. Uh, uh, and, uh, and I thank God for this fellowship. Thank you. Those who wish, please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you for listening to this audio recording. To hear additional recordings or to learn more about Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, you can visit our website, foodaddicts.org.